We're back with another episode of PS Voice. This time with featured guest Mark Leonard, director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, in a discussion moderated by former editor and foreign correspondent for The Economist, John Andrews. The conversation today, U.S. foreign policy and a post-liberal world order. What's at stake now that Trump is at the helm, and how will 2016's populist upheaval play out in the year ahead? My name is John Andrews. I'm a contributor to Project Syndicate myself, and it's my great pleasure to introduce Mark Leonard, who is the director of the European Council on Foreign Relations. And from the press, we have Slavomir Siakowski, who is the editor of the Warsaw-based Kritika Politichna, or Political Critique in English. And here we have Mark Leonard on Russia. The Trump presidency, we talk a lot about Trump, but maybe we should also be talking about the Vladimir Putin presidency because the two things seem to be going together. You've had all the stuff about a compromat and uh, you know, the hacking of, uh, of uh, the, the uh, U.S. election. How do you view the relationship between Russia and the US. I think the next phase now, uh, as we get over the debates about fake news and hacking and things like that, will be about geopolitics and raw geopolitics. And it does look like Donald Trump is on the verge of doing a really audacious political move, which is what Nixon and Kissinger did in reverse, trying to build an alliance between Washington and Moscow against uh, Beijing. uh, And Uh, the repercussions of that are going to be enormous, particularly for Europeans who find themselves on the front line. Well, Slavomir, Poland is more or less on the front line. Um, Do you agree with what Mark says? Is that the the analysis that you have as well? Um, Well, for sure, we can't be happy and satisfied uh, having Trump in America, having Brexit in in, in Great Britain, having uh, um, Le Pen or um, or François Fillon, both are pro-Russian, okay? And then, like, you can you can see that in the following elections, probably we'll get more of pro-Russian leaders, okay? But uh, my question to you both would be, what can be really the outcome of this collaboration, of this kind of pop mintern uh, that emerged in the West, like people, like leaders that are really pro-Russian, cooperate, take money from Kremlin, like support Putin, like what can be the real outcome of it uh, in the West? Because we know it, but we don't have any like real projection, like good scenario, bad scenario, mid scenario. It's interesting because on the one hand, the the common ground seems to be uh, the level of values. There is a sort of uh, universal pushback against the, the sort of liberal internationalism, cosmopolitanism, uh, sexual politics of of the uh, of the noughties and of the the last few years. Um, but that is not enough to build a geopolitical alliance around. It's not like uh, communism versus capitalism during the during the Cold well, War. Well, if, if you're right, if your first first uh, first part of your answer is right, then we have kind of like two political philosophies or, or two uh, sets of values. But I'm not sure if like populists are really so initiative. I think they are reactive. I think it's true. It is reactive, but it's also. Uh, I don't think necessarily an adequate basis for international relations, not least because all of our societies are divided societies. And the so you think that they are only useful ideas of Putin? 
I think that that's the, the base on which this is forged. Then you can see uh, some areas where you could actually have a real alliance, like what's happening in the Middle East, there does seem to be a big shift in American foreign policy. Donald Trump has said that he's no longer interested in, in supporting the, the opposition in Syria. He thinks that they're just terrorists, that it should be about fighting ISIL, ISIL and that you could do a deal with Russia to, 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 to deal with that. And I think that is something which is, uh, which is possible to imagine. The question is whether you can build out from that. And some of the things that Donald Trump said during the campaign were that he would recognize uh, the annexation of Crimea, exactly. that he would so remove let's go, sanctions. Let's, let's on, go into details. Yeah. What about sanctions? Well, that's the, that's the biggest question, because I think the Europeans are enormously divided on, on sanctions. But will um, they still be, if you will get Francois Fillon, if you will well, I think get... that, that so far, the big geopolitical miracle of the last two years has been that these tough sanctions were agreed and that they that then two years were ago robust. appeared not to be really tough but like more like yeah. symbolic I but now that, that now we we, we see that they are tough i think they they look pretty tough at the time i mean it was pretty you know before mh17 the the malaysian airliner yeah. was downed it was unthinkable that you'd have sectoral sanctions that would do big damage to to european economies you think trump will withdraw I think if Trump withdraws the sanctions, then you have all of these member states which have felt trapped in a sanctions regime which they never really believed in. Countries like Italy, Hungary, Greece, Cyprus, Cyprus, Austria, uh, Slovakia, Bulgaria that are kind of uh, ambivalent about it. And and then if you get François Fillon um, or Marine Le Pen as the president of France, one of the four, uh, one of the, the countries in the, the, who signed the Budapest Memorandum, who are in the Normandy format, um, also withdrawing from the sanctions, then they become unsustainable. What does it mean for Ukraine? I think that we have a pretty good idea that, that Donald Trump is not going to. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I think. Ukrainians are pretty sober about how much the US was supporting them anyway. It was very clear that the Budapest Memorandum ended up not meaning a huge amount. If you take the Trump view of Moscow and of Putin as an individual, I mean, Trump has been pretty vocal, and yet his own team seem to have misgivings about this. I mean, Tillerson, for example, was not nearly as, uh, as outspokenly pro-Putin in his confirmation hearings as he had been when he was ordered, has given his order of friendship. Uh, Mathis, uh, the same, the defense secretary. The, I mean, the, is, the, is the Trump team united on this? Nobody knows what Donald Trump is actually going to do as president. Over the last few years, he's been on both sides yeah. of many different political issues. Um, when his uh, prospective cabinet nominees have been trying to get through their confirmation hearings, uh, the tried and tested rule is to say as little as possible and to be as vague as possible in these circumstances anyway. So I'm not sure we can extrapolate enormously from that. But it does seem to be something that that Trump cares about a lot personally. He does seem to think this is uh, something where he has a, a kind of vision, different vision of, uh, of America's role. And I suspect uh, I mean, that... I mean, we had the famous you know, reset at the beginning of the yeah. Obama um, period. And in a sense, we're getting a reset again, aren't we? I think it's going to be a reset on steroids. But, you know, it could go the same way as the as the Obama reset in that expectations have been uh, set quite high on both sides. And uh, it will be interesting to see if Donald Trump 
satisfies the expectations that Vladimir Putin has of, uh, of his coming in. And also, it's not entirely clear from Trump's perspective what he wants from I Russia. Mean, like, this yeah. is one thing. But another thing that, you know, in this personalized uh, politics that yeah. we have uh, in, in the world today, maybe we can expect some kind of conflict of ambitions between Putin and Trump. Both are like macho men. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Obama was not a macho man. We saw that. I mean, you know, the other complicated relationship between alpha males um, be exactly. is between Erdogan and Putin. And there we've seen a lot of ups and downs. There's both and kind of great who's, steps who's, forward. Who's smarter? Who's a better player? Between Putin and, and Donald that's Trump. easy answer. I think, you know, Putin has uh, obviously got a lot more experience than Donald Trump does. He's done a fantastic job of playing a very bad hand in terms of uh, power play on the international Trump stage. Trump is a child, like, you knowing not, like nothing, like knowing nothing about himself. He doesn't know what he's going to do, you know, not only like uh, his conjecture, contradictory in everything and being not aware of this fact. But that, I don't think that's a, that's a bug in the system. I think that is the system with Donald Trump. But he also sees unpredictability as part of, uh, as a kind of tool of power in the same way that yeah. Putin does, actually. So, uh, well, you know, the same way that King Jong-un does. Yeah, actually, I mean, it's uh, maybe they, can, they will balance uh, each <laughs> other and like, we will have this, this status quo well, survive. The final section in this series is Mark Leonard on Obama's legacy. What do you think of the Obama legacy? What, what is it? We'll see whether he has any legacy at all, because a lot of the things that he did are going to be uh, overturned by Donald Trump and by the Congress now that it's in the Republicans' hands. But I think domestically, um, you know, there are uh, various things, but Obamacare is the kind of signature Although, project. I mean, domestically, he did actually, uh, he inherited an economy in, in, in deep doo-doo, yeah. and now it's not. And yeah. Unemployment is just 4.7% of the workforce. So I think the is, domestic legacy is, is a mix of having saved the country from, from uh, the worst depression. And two wars in the Middle East. Uh, I think that's the, the foreign policy legacy is about a recalibration of American power. So withdrawing from uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan, pioneering a new kind of uh, foreign policy that relied on drones, on sanctions, on other uh, forms of influence that didn't involve putting American troops on the ground, and by and large, a kind of uh, withdrawal to an attempt to withdraw to offshore balancing in different parts of the world, and as a result, the U.S. Well, plus also negotiating, getting a, a, a consensus. You look at the Iran deal, for example, uh, which I think was has been a great success. Absolutely. Whether Trump really does try to sabotage it remains to be seen. I think you have the Iran deal and then you have the, and the Cuba. climate and, and Paris. Cuba. And yeah, Paris, yeah, exactly. Yes. And I think, that, but I think that a lot of those things are going to come under a lot of pressure. The Iran nuclear deal is uh, looking very vulnerable because Congress is, uh, you know, they put 80 bills uh, to, through the last session of Congress to try and introduce sanctions on non-nuclear issues, on ballistic missiles, on regional things, on human rights. On the other hand, um, Boeing is now selling a lot of aeroplanes to Iran. So is Airbus, which has a lot of suppliers in the States. If you th I mean, Trump has talked about draining the swamp. Yeah. But the, the political reality is that companies like Boeing and Airbus and all the other uh, aerospace and defense manufacturers in the States have huge lobbying power with campaign finance for as long as the House they are produced in in, in America, of course. But uh, but the, the thing is that maybe a part of this legacy that we don't 
we're not aware of it. it because like Obama is like civic platform in Poland. For the last eight years, they were more administrating the country than really like reforming it, doing like Polish modernization went like on a side of, of what happened, like in politics, really. But the biggest uh, but the biggest achievement is that they stopped Kaczynski because Kaczynski could appear much earlier doing the same things as he does now. Um, maybe Obama legacy is like stopping politicians like Bush and like uh, like blocking politicians like Trump or some other uh, candidates or Republicans that were also. So you crazy mean he's been a, a, sort of a, a delaying mechanism like, in like, the rise of populism, like cordon, sanitary cordon, like yeah. and and uh, and like Merkel also plays the same role. Okay, so maybe they 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 postponed this era of populism and every with every day uh, every day with Kaczynski proves that Tusk with his minimalist program was maybe the you know the, the the good politician the same way we can think about Obama I think Obama is also in many ways the father of Trump I mean I think that um, what we're seeing <laughs> I'm sure he wouldn't <laughs> like that particular yeah, but description like, yeah, maybe but it's you, a good you point. could be right what, what do you think yeah, well I think that you know Trump uh, is a product of identity politics and what Obama did was uh, ran uh, a campaign which was centered around mobilizing what you know democratic strategists called the emerging democratic majority. But it was essentially looking at all the groups who felt disenfranchised and creating a, a rainbow coalition out of gay people, out of women, out of African-Americans, out of Latinos, out of uh, a lot of the groups who felt that the world had been organized uh, against them over the years and he knitted them together into this um, powerful and, political force. And he force. did it twice. He did it twice and he could probably... And he could probably have done claimed, it a third time. In fact, he claims that he, he, he would have done it a third time. But as a result of that, you uh, if all those groups mobilize themselves, it's not that surprising that you get a counter-mobilization of the white working class who thought of themselves as a majority but feared that they were going to become and a minority. Especially if you, if you have a candidate like Hillary Clinton. But, well, but <laughs> that was the interesting thing. So, so in a way... She's more a mother of Trump than Obama is a father of... Uh, I think Obama, as an African-American, African kind of was like embodied the movement, so he didn't need to talk about it. And what was interesting about his original election campaign uh, in 2008, it was all about being a kind of post, you know, it was about bringing the country together. He didn't run as a black man. Whereas Hillary Clinton had none of that and it was entirely about identity don't politics. You think, don't you think, just, uh, just one question, sure. don't you think that she, that he was more credible than, than, than she? Like if, if, when she entered the scene and, yeah. and, and w w saying like, I'm going to change America, I'm going to do this, 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 and who would believe it after 30 years of uh, her, po her, you know, policies yeah. in, in Washington? When he came, when he entered the scene, said, "I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to expel those guys and these guys." Well, you know, why not to believe in what he's saying? Yeah. Mark, I get, uh, just a final question: If you take presidents Obama, Clinton, and George W., how will history rate them? Give them marks out of 10. 10 being the best. Obama. I think Obama will be um, uh, probably a seven. Okay. George W. I think he'll be uh, four. And Bill Clinton? I think Bill Clinton will probably be seven or eight. 
Yeah, that's it. Mark Leonard, thank you very, very much for being our guest. <laughs> Thanks for listening to PS Voice. Go beyond the news with Project Syndicate by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and by reading our greatest minds at www.project-syndicate.org.